Hi. And thanks for listening to Here and Now Anytime. We've got new episodes every weekday afternoon, so make sure you don't miss anything by following and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. And if you've already subscribed, tell a friend about us. Now here's the show. We will have a safe Chicago. We will make Chicago the safest city in America. We can build a better, stronger, safer Chicago, and tonight is just the beginning. Who will be the next mayor of Chicago? It's Wednesday, the 1st of March, and this is Here and Now, Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, new revelations about a common test for depression and its origins in a pharmaceutical marketing department, and residents of Muck City fight for environmental justice in the sugarcane fields of South Florida. But first, the country's third biggest city will have a new mayor after Chicagoans denied Lori Lightfoot a second term last night. In 2019, Lightfoot became the first black woman and openly gay person to hold the office, winning every one of the city's 50 wards on a platform of reform for policing and education and a pledge to clean up local government. Four years later, she failed to get enough votes to advance to a runoff next month, with a crowded field of competitors pressing many of those same issues, crime, schools, and corruption. Speaking last night, Lightfoot said being mayor was the honor of a lifetime, and that she will be rooting and praying for the next mayor. Obviously, we didn't win the election today, but I stand here with my head held high and a heart full of gratitude. And regardless of tonight's outcome, we fought the right fights and we put this city on a better path. No doubt about it. Since no one got 50% of the vote, the top two vote-getters now head to a runoff. For more about them and the issues that factored into this election, we called up Tessa Weinberg at WBEZ in Chicago. She spoke to Jane Clayson. Crime is definitely top of mind for voters this election. You know, homicides did dip uh, in 2022, but 2021 was um, the most violent year the city's had in a quarter of a century. And um, that that sentiment was uh, top of mind in uh, surveys we did, in talking with voters. Um, that's what they wanted to, to see fixed. And, you know, some had a variety of, uh, of ways to do that, whether that was, um, you know, boosting resources to the police. Other candidates have talked about addressing the root causes of violence, like poverty. Um, but it was definitely crime, crime, crime uh, was the message that we heard on, on the campaign trail overall. Well, let's hear from those candidates. Uh, former CEO of Chicago Schools, Paul Vallis, who is white, and Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson, who is black, will face each other in the runoff next month. Vallis ran with a tough on crime message. Here he is. We will have a safe Chicago. We will make Chicago the safest city in America. Vallis talks a lot about the utter breakdown of law and order in Chicago. And Johnson, on the other hand, talks about cutting the police budget by $150 million, spending that on social service agencies. Here he is last night. We can build a better, stronger, safer Chicago, and tonight is just the beginning. Is this another election defined by defund the police rhetoric, Tessa? 
I think we'll have to see how that plays out. Uh, you know, I think uh, Brandon Johnson, while he's previously um, expressed support for defunding the police, he's been a little a little more noncommittal about where exactly he stands on that um, during the campaign trail. But uh, regardless, I think crime is going to be uh, front and center um, when it comes to the runoff election. Um, you know, Paul Vallis is endorsed by Chicago's police union, and so he has their backing, and that's already, I think, been um, you know a fine line he's he's tried to walk uh, during the election, especially in the final weeks. Um, so I think that it's going to continue to be a defining issue as the candidates really, you know, vary, I think, on how they would approach uh, crime and what they would do to, um, you know, give more resources to the police. Yeah. As you say, Vallis has the backing of the police union. Johnson, who was a teacher, has the backing of the teachers union. So it sort of looks like a choice between the future of education and the future of policing in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Yes, they both have really powerful uh, unions behind them. I think the teachers union in particular has, um, you know, had a growing influence when it comes to politics in the city. And, um, you know, Johnson, I think, really kind of came from behind um, to make the runoff election. You know, he talked about that in his uh, election night speech last night. Um, so I think, but, you know, crime and education are going to be top issues. Paul Vallis is the former CEO of Chicago Public Schools. Um, and so I think those will be areas where you're going to really see the two candidates diverge um, when it comes to the election. Well, it's interesting to look at the numbers. Mayor Lori Lightfoot lost a lot of African-American voters in this election. Who are they backing in the runoff? You know, I think that remains to be seen. Um, I know I think all the candidates have been really trying to hone in on the message that they are a coalition builder in a city that is roughly a third white residents, a third Latino residents, and a third uh, black residents. That's been the message and that a lot of, you know, observers have said, if you want to win, that's where you're going to have to be successful at. Um, you know, Brandon Johnson, you know, he is black and on uh, the campaign trail, he's talked about that he feels no one has more of an incentive in the future of the city than, um, you know, a black man, Mary Tubb black woman raising his kids on the west side. Um, So I think that's going to be something we uh, see the candidates increasingly fight for of earning um, the support of the black community. Tessa Weinberg is government and politics reporter for WBEZ in Chicago. Tessa, thank you. Thanks so much. I live in Chicago and just want to note one other interesting tidbit from last night's election results. There was a big spike in mail-in ballots this year, but overall turnout, still just around 33% as of the count around noon Wednesday, lower than the previous three municipal general elections. So take that for what it's worth. Coming up, a common test used to diagnose depression has its origins in drug marketing. After the break, we hear how that revelation is renewing scrutiny of mental health care in this country. Stick around. If you've been to the doctor recently, you might have taken a test called PHQ-9, though you might not have known it by that name. It's the depression screening test. It asks whether you've been feeling down, had trouble concentrating, questions along those lines. Well, the original idea for this questionnaire didn't come from a doctor. It came from a marketing man who worked for Pfizer, the company that developed the antidepressant Zoloft. Olivia Goldhill uncovered the origins of this test for our editorial partners at STAT, the health and medicine publication, and she told Scott Tong that PHQ-9 is ubiquitous. It's incredibly widely used. So anyone who's had any kind of mental health condition will likely have been given it. 
or even if you don't have any mental health condition, because it's used as a screening tool, meaning it's used, you know, when you go to the doctor, if someone isn't planning on mentioning their mental health, just to check and see. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of the, the, the heart of the mental health system in the way of identified depression. And what I discovered was, so this tool was funded by Pfizer, but nobody's ever kind of got the details of how that happened. Mm. And I discovered that the whole idea for it came from a marketing man who, you know, worked to try and create greater awareness about Zoloft. Yeah, tell us about this guy. Yeah, so he's a a very interesting man. And I will say he also seems very well-intentioned. You know, he wanted to help doctors to better understand depression. But he also, you know, he's on the marketing side... Pfizer, he, he got them to invest hundreds of thousands of dollars in investing that tool. And he naturally kind of portrayed it to them as a way of saying, you're missing a market here. Primary care doctors aren't engaging in depression. We need to make it easier for them to find depression, which naturally would have business interest for Pfizer in expanding the market for Zoloft, which is what happened. This marketing man recruited three very credible scientists who who worked on developing the tool, but he was the one who kind of had the whole idea and pitched it to Pfizer and then later pitched it to doctors trying to get more use of it. And, And you ended up speaking to him. Did he have any idea it would become so widespread? He had no idea. He actually didn't even know it had become so widespread um, until kind of a couple of years ago when he went to the doctor's office. And what the article traces is what happened to that tool and how it has become so widely used and potentially misused. It's kind of become a crux in this system, which is overstretched and doctors don't have training in mental health care. So it just becomes this very quick and easy tool where you Patients are given a questionnaire, they are check boxes, and then they're handed a prescription. And there's very little kind of nuance or understanding because this is a tool designed to recognize depression. But a big problem is most mental health conditions, you will score high on this. So if you have trauma or OCD or ADHD, mm-hmm. and all of these people, if you just get a PHQ-9, you'll just likely walk away with an SSRI prescription. So it's kind of made depression and antidepressants, the absolute front and center of mental health care, mm-hmm. which isn't necessarily to the benefit of everyone. Olivia, you spoke to Kelly Williams, a patient from California, who took this test at her OBGYN's office in 2016. Tell us about her case. Yeah, so she was a really interesting case of um, what doctors worry about happening, which is You get this test as standard when you're pregnant as part of screening. She was a patient who scored high on the PHQ-9 and the doctor said, you're going to need to take Zoloft. And Callie Williams said, well, I have ADHD and I can't take my medication at the moment because I'm pregnant. And I think that's what's going on. You know, could I get a referral to someone who's a psychiatrist with more expertise in mental health care who can help me? And the doctor said, no, the PHQ-9 says you're depressed. Mm. If you don't take Zoloft, we're going to mark you as non-compliant. And that's a very, I think, striking example of box checking gone wrong and the lack of nuance and support that can sometimes go with over-relying on it. And so what happened with Kelly? Yeah, she took the Zoloft. It didn't help at all. After her pregnancy, she managed to find a doctor who 
helped her. And she said it was absolutely transformative. You know, she's now got a a 4.0 GPA in college as well as working full time and and being a mom. And Mm. she said she really mourns the, the years that she lost through being misdiagnosed. Finally, Olivia Zoloft made more than $3 billion for Pfizer in one year in 2005 alone. What did Pfizer say when you contacted them? Well, they said, you know, we developed this tool because we care about patient interests, uh, and that was it. And I think the people I spoke to throughout the pharmaceutical sector, they pointed to kind of this tricky balance of both trying to help patients and trying to make money. And basically, I think those were the two goals of the PHQ-9, to expand the Zoloft sales and hopefully to help patients. The question now, decades on, when you look at the data, we're really not doing well at treating depression. Rates of depression are higher than ever. And I think there's this question of when you try and marry patient interests with business interests, there can be a risk that the business interests went out and that we need to reconsider whether this tool is actually helping patients. Olivia Goldhill is an investigative reporter with STAT, the health and medicine publication, and our editorial partners. Olivia, thanks very much. Thank you for having me on. Coming up, a new investigation digs into the environmental justice claims against Florida's sugar barons, whose farmers burn sugarcane and blanket nearby communities in what some residents call black snow. It messed up our cars, it messed up our houses, it messed up our hair. I have natural hair, and when it gets in there, it's really hard to get out. That's after the break. Her soil is her fortune. That's the motto for Belle Glade, one of the sugarcane farming communities in a part of South Florida known as Muck City. Sugarcane thrives in that mucky black soil on the shores of Lake Okeechobee, and sugar companies have made a fortune as the area's biggest employers. But before they harvest their crop, sugarcane farmers often burn their fields, sending clouds of ash into the air. Journalist Sandy Tolan told Scott that the sugar industry's pollution is falling heaviest on the residents of Muck City. It's an hour away from Palm Beach, but a whole other world for sure. There are three largely black towns known as Muck City, Belglade, Pahokee, and South Bay, adjacent to the Everglades. And you went to see the burning of the sugar cane. How does it affect the people there? Well, it's called pre-harvest burning. It sends these giant clouds of ash up into the air, Mm. and a lot of that ash, literally tons and tons of it, drifts over these towns in Muck City and then settles down on the towns and onto the people on their houses and their cars and into their lungs. And they call it black snow, which has toxins, chemicals, pesticides? Yeah, it has residues of formaldehyde and benzene, which are both carcinogenic. The companies insist that this is safe. There are a number of studies that indicate it may well not be. The Florida State University did a 
uh, peer-reviewed studies that documented increased mortality. NPR and Stanford University found that the area in Palm Beach County around the cane burning is some of the worst in the nation. The company said data saying the air is clean, the cleanest in the state, but the issue seems to be the lack of proper air quality monitors of, of ProPublica and the Palm Beach Post hmm. set up their own air sensors and they registered much higher particulate matters. These monitors showed huge spikes during the burns. And so people are very concerned. I mean, imagine having black ash falling on your town uh, for you know nearly half the year. Mm. Sandy, you spoke to many residents of Muck City about this, about the air, about the health impacts, and it aired on the program Living on Earth. Let's take a listen. The ash, unaffectionately known as the black snow, uh, ash is just raining down upon everything in the community, your homes, your cars, your food. It's like black ash all over the place. It's like raining ash. Out of nowhere, you know, you're just sitting there, boom, ash is on you. When you look at your clothes, hey, I got ash on my clothes. It messed up our cars, it messed up our houses, it messed up our hair. I have natural hair, and when it gets in there, it's really hard to get out. As much as I can try to keep him indoors and say, son, we can't go outside. He's a boy, you know, he wants to run and climb the trees. I'm sitting out trying to enjoy a drink. You know, my drink has ash in it. Man, I have to do something about this. You you would think like, where is this coming from? Why is it like this? It's almost apocalyptic at times, especially when fields are being burnt simultaneously. The smoke can block the sun out. The community actually turns dark. It's like, wow, man, this is this is crazy. When my grandbaby was born, we noticed that when we take him outside and because it was the burning season, he struggled to breathe. We got to the point where we had to put him on a machine. Wow. Sandy, the the, the voice is almost apocalyptic. As you re-listen to these voices you recorded, what do you take away? Well, people are speaking out now much more than they used to. These are company towns, essentially, you know, the Fun Hools and U.S. Sugar, they sponsor local little leagues, you know, they fund scholarship programs, money for parks. So you feel this paternalistic big sugar presence all around in the glades. But the charity comes with a message, which is, you know, we'll provide all these nice things, but let us do mm-hmm. the business the way we want to do it. Don't rock the boat. And lately, that's been changing. I mean, there have been so many people talking about more nebulizers for kids, COPD machines, terrible headaches, strange mm. rashes. Now, you know, they formed a chapter of Black Lives Matter, a Muck City chapter, and they brought in the Sierra Club and they started a campaign to stop the burning. Yeah. You came across the former mayor. What was his story? Yeah, his name is Colin Walks. He's a remarkable guy. He got his master's degree. He was in the military. He was a probation officer. Then he ran for mayor. And he told me that his opposition to the cane burning and his endorsement of Stop the Burn not only cost him his reelection, but also his community service job. He told me that powerful people complained and he was out. Speaking out uh, against our industry as far as the practice of sugarcane burning is kind of like a death sentence here in the community when it comes to your livelihood. The most extreme thing that happened to me was where I was actually fired from my job. And it really rocked me. You know, you have a daughter in college, you know, uh, two young uh, sons in the home, a wife, you got a mortgage. I actually lost my home, you know, for about a month. We were actually homeless. I actually slept in the park. Wow. There is burning in Muck City, and yet it's not permitted 
when the wind blows this smoke into more affluent communities. Why is that? Well, you know, the state politicians and, and sugar executives say it has nothing to do with affluence, but it's kind of hard to believe. It's right there in a Freedom of Information Act request to the Florida Department of Agriculture, Scott. Burn permits are allowed when the wind blows toward the Glades communities, but denied when it blows east toward the equestrian town of Wellington, for example, or mm. the Fonquil Mansions in coastal Palm Beach, about 40 miles away. You know, of all the stunning things about this story, that one probably struck me the most. Yeah. I would add, you know, I tried so many times, dozens of times via phone and email, I reached out to the big sugar companies, U.S. Sugar and the Von Hool Corporation, Florida Crystals. No one would talk to me on tape. They said they didn't like the message of past reporting, including my own, with a terrific Dominican-Haitian reporter, Euclides Cordero Noel, mm. you know, that exposed the abusive labor conditions of the Von Hool's Dominican Republic plantation. And the Von Hool Florida Crystals vice president, he did actually send a long response by email, you know, pointing out all of its charitable activities, which are true and, and real. But again, no one had the willingness or, if you like, the nerve to speak into my microphone about this. And then my last day in Florida, I found someone. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It's a good day to be in the house of the Lord. Here in the Lord's house, in church, I found him. State Representative Rick Roth, a politician and a sugar grower. Praise God. He's hawking votes two days before the, the election. My heart is in the glades. I've got muck underneath my toes. Thank God I am here today. We need people that fear God to run for public office. Please, I'm asking for your vote. Now, Rick Roth slips out the back door. And a little rudely, I suppose, so do I. Senator Roth? He's a bit surprised to see me, but he agrees to talk, and he insists there's nothing dangerous in the ash. Well, it's funny. We've been doing cane burning ever since the industry really got going in the early 1960s. Burning is not dangerous to your health unless you're standing out in it and trying to breathe it. It's not an air quality issue. I don't think it's a health issue. I want to ask you one more question. This burning question, if everything is so safe, why let the black snow fall on Muck City? But then when the wind blows east toward those wealthier communities, pull the permits. And a lot of people feel like that's not fair. The city's had nothing to do with that. This is a Florida regulation. Well, what do you think about that? I mean, they're like... Well, you always have to make decisions. This is not a hazard. It is obviously an agenda. Right, but why would... why was saying it's an agenda. It's not an issue. No, but I'm asking you, what about when the wind shifts and, then, and they pull the permits? The, the regulations are, are done to do the least amount of harm possible. There is no data, no scientific data, to my knowledge. But you've asked four questions on this issue like it's important as the economy, and it's not. Yeah, so there are a lot of pro-sugar folks in uh, Muck City, and obviously a lot who are you know, increasingly opposed to it. And so the coalition around the Stop the Burn campaigns, they really want this to be the last season of the pre-harvest burns. So the Environmental and Black Lives Matter Coalition from Muck City is now looking to the U.S. Congress, including the upcoming reauthorization of the Farm Bill this spring, where they think they'll have more influence to make changes.
Journalist Sandy Tolan has been covering the sugar industry, sugar farm workers, and environmental justice for Living on Earth, the radio program, Reveal, and Mother Jones. And we will have links to your stories on our website. Sandy, thanks for the time. Scott, great to be with you. Head to hereandnow.org for more stories. Today, the nation's largest Protestant denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, has been kicking out churches that employ women as pastors. The biggest news around the Southern Baptist Convention these days is around their response to abuse. And so some people, both inside and outside the convention, see the move to disfellowship churches over women pastors as putting their energy and priorities in the wrong place. Head to hereandnow.org for that whole conversation. This show comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by Lynn Menegon, Gabrielle Healy, and Shirley Jihad. Our editors are Todd Munt, Gabe Bullard, Peter O'Dowd, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Caleb Green and Mike Moschetto. Theme music by Mike, me, and Max Liebman. Our digital producers are Grace Griffin and Allison Hagen. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.